I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me tonight to First uh, Kings chapter seven. First Kings chapter seven. We'll be uh, reading tonight uh, verses thirteen through fifty-one. Verses thirteen through fifty-one. Solomon is engaged in the great building project of his life, that is the building of the temple, the temple of the Lord, which altogether took him uh, seven years to build. And uh, the uh, furnishings of the temple are described in the section that we're going to read. And you'll notice that Hiram is uh, from Tyre, And he's someone that God has given great wisdom and understanding and skill for doing the work. And you'll notice also that as we go through the various items of the furnishings of the temple, some of them are described in great, great detail. And as we were discussing this morning in adult Sunday school class and the various genres of scripture, this is one of those uh, passages where... It it creates some difficulty for us reading it because it is so detailed and it's hard for us to put together um, all of the pieces uh, of what is being described. Those of you who have an ESV study Bible um, will note that there are wonderful drawings, uh, uh, probably the best that I've seen, of the various items of uh, the furnishings of the temple and the temple as a whole that Solomon built. But uh, with that said, uh, let's uh, look to the Lord's word, and uh, we will read, beginning at verse 13. And King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was the son of a widow of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze. And he was full of wisdom, understanding, and skill for making any work in bronze, And he came to King Solomon and did all his work. And he cast the two pillars of bronze. Eighteen cubits was the height of one pillar, and a line of twelve cubits measured its circumference. It was hollow, and its thickness was four fingers, and the second pillar was the same. He also made two capitals of cast bronze to set on the tops of the pillars, The height of the one capital was five cubits, and the height of the other capital was five cubits. And there were lattices of checkerwork with wreaths of chainwork for the capitals on the tops of the pillars, a lattice for the one capital and a lattice for the other capital. Likewise, he made pomegranates in two rows around the one latticework to cover the capital that was on the top of the pillar And he did the same with the other capital. And now the capitals that were on the tops of the pillars in the vestibule were of lily work, four cubits. The capitals uh, were on the two pillars and also above the rounded projection, which was beside the latticework. And there were 200 pomegranates in two rows all around. And so with the other capital. And he set the pillars at the vestibule of the temple, and he set up the pillar on the south and called its name Jachin. And he set up the pillar on the north and called its name Boaz. And on the tops of the pillars was lily work. Thus the work 
of the pillars was finished. Then he made the sea of cast metal. It was round, ten cubits from brim to brim, and five cubits high, and a line of thirty cubits measured its circumference. Under its brim were gourds for ten cubits, compassing the sea all around. The gourds were in two rows, cast with it when it was cast, and it stood on twelve oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. The sea was set on them, and all their rear parts were inward. Its thickness was a handbreadth, and its brim was made like the brim of a cup, like the flower of a lily. It held two thousand baths. And he also made the ten stands of bronze. Each stand was four cubits long, four cubits wide, and three cubits high. And this was the construction of the stands. They had, two pa- they had panels, and the panels were set in the frames. And on the panels that were in the frames were lions, oxen, cherubim. On the frames, both above and below the lions and oxen, there were wreaths of beveled work. Moreover, each stand had four bronze wheels and axles of bronze, and at the four corners were supports for a basin. The supports were cast with wreaths at the side of each. Its opening was within a crown that had projected upward one cubit, Its opening was round, as a pedestal is made, a cubit and a half deep. At its opening there were carvings, and its panels were square, not round. And the four wheels were underneath the panels, and the axles of the wheels were of one piece with the stands. And the height of a wheel was a cubit and a half, and the wheels were made like a chariot wheel, and their axles, their rims, Their spokes and their hubs were all cast, and there were four supports at the four corners of each stand. The supports were of one piece with the stands, and on the top of the stand there was a round band half a cubit high, and on the top of the stand its stays and its panels were of one piece with it, and on the surfaces of its stays and on its panels He carved cherubim, lions, and palm trees according to the space of each, with wreaths all around. After this manner, he made the ten stands. All of them were cast alike of the same measure and the same form. And he made ten basins of bronze. Each basin held forty baths. Each basin measured four cubits and there was a basin for each of the ten stands. And he set the stands, five on the south side of the house and five on the north side of the house, and he set the sea at the southeast corner of the house. Hiram also made the pots, the shovels, and the basins. So Hiram finished all the work that he he did for King Solomon on the house of the Lord, the two pillars, the two bowls of the capitals that were on the tops of the pillars, and the two lattice works to cover the two bowls of the capitals that were on the tops of the pillars, 
and the 400 pomegranates for the two lattice works, two rows of pomegranates for each lattice work, to cover the two bowls of the capitals that were on the pillars, the ten stands, and the ten basins on the stands, and the one sea, and the twelve oxen underneath the sea. Now the pots, the shovels, and the basins, and all these vessels in the house of the Lord, which Hiram made for King Solomon, were of burnished bronze. In the plain of the Jordan, the king cast them, in the clay ground between Succoth and Zarethan. And Solomon left all the vessels unweighed, because there were so many of them, the weight of the bronze was not ascertained. So Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of the Lord, the golden altar, the golden table for the bread of the presence, and the lampstands of pure gold, five on the south side, five on the north, before the inner sanctuary, the flowers, the lamps, and the tongs of gold, the cups, the snuffers, basins, dishes for incense, and firepans of pure gold, and the sockets of the gold for the doors of the innermost part of the house, the most holy place, and for the doors of the nave of the temple. And thus all the work that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was finished, and Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated, the silver, the gold, and the vessels, and stored them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. So ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Eternal God, we give thanks to you for your word. We ask, Father, as we study it together, that you, by your grace and by your spirit, would give aid and help. And we ask, Father, for your spirit to give us understanding. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You might uh, have a time in your own life where you had to prepare either your home or some other building for a great event. Solomon was doing the work of preparing the house of the Lord for the dedication of the house, which was to follow and will follow in chapter 8. And uh, in that preparation... Uh, we understand that Solomon is building the temple of the Lord according to the pattern that God had given. This is not a building that is, has its origin in human uh, imagination or wisdom, but it has its origin in the divine mind. God had told Moses uh, to build the tabernacle just exactly as he showed him according to the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it, uh, Exodus 25:40, And uh, also we find that God uh, reiterates to Moses that everything about the temple is uh, designed exactly as it is by God's divine uh, uh, design and plan. Not only did God plan the temple, but he, uh, he devised, uh, he, he uh, brought about those men 
to, uh, who had the gifts to build it. And so we find Hiram here in the account that we just read in the early verses of this chapter. And prior to Hiram, the Lord had given great wisdom to a man by the name of Bezalel. And uh, he is described uh, as the one who built the tabernacle and all the furniture for the tabernacle in, that was built in the wilderness. And uh, the Lord had filled him with the Spirit of God and with skill and intelligence, with knowledge and with all craftsmanship to work in all of the various silver and gold and bronze and in stone and in wood. And so all of this skill is a divine gift. And it reminds us, doesn't it, that the Lord gives gifts to men. And it is the Holy Spirit that equips those whom he calls to do the work of his, that he uh, has for them to do. And God here uh, gave uh, Hiram from Tyre, who is described as one who is a son of a widow of the tribe of Naphtali. So he is part Israelite, but uh, his father was a man of Tyre. And uh, he was a worker in bronze, we are told. But Hiram here is described as one who is full of wisdom and understanding and skill for the making of any work in bronze. We notice well in this, in this chapter that we've read that not only is God the one who designed everything about this, this uh, temple that Solomon is building, but, uh, and not only did God equip the men who had the skill and the ability to do it, But it is also true that uh, the Lord designed this building to be built from with the use of various materials. The stone was used and carved, great stones, large stones, uh, wood, valuable wood was brought in. And uh, all of the uh, material of that we will that we have read about tonight was of bronze. Hiram was a worker in bronze and we're told where he made uh, the molds to make these items of bronze. Uh, he, we're told that he, used, he made these in the plain of the Jordan, verse uh, 46. In the plain of the Jordan, in the clay ground, there by the Jordan River. And uh, so uh, there are various materials that are used, and the ones that are primarily described in this chapter are materials of bronze. But it's also true that described in this chapter are materials having to do with the temple proper. And in uh, verses 48 through 50 of the chapter that we just read, we have a description of those vessels that were made for the house of the Lord, the golden altar, the golden table, and the bread of the presence, and the lampstands of pure gold. And all of the other vessels that were in the actual house of the Lord, the temple proper, um, were made of gold. So what we see then is a gradation, as it were, from the outward to the inward. You have uh, items made of bronze uh, in the uh, inner court, Uh, Then you have in the house of the Lord items made of gold. And of course, in the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant would be, everything is made of gold. 
And uh, as, as was mentioned earlier, uh, no one uh, other than the priest, high priest, and that once a year ever saw the inside of the Holy of Holies. The only way they knew what was in there was the same way that you and I know, and that is from Scripture. But what I want us to see is that there is almost, as it were, uh, a three-stage three, uh, pathway to divine glory. And my focus uh, is on the fact that God has provided, God has provided not only the materials for the building of the temple, but uh, God has provided um, everything that is needed that we might uh, 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 be united with him in grace and glory. The grand vision of all of Scripture is what we heard of this morning from the book of Revelation. Christ in, on his glorious throne in the highest heaven. And the temple uh, sets before us a model, as it were, of the, the highest glory being that of the Holy of Holies. And then outwardly from that, you have a gradation. And the materials reflect that gradation. The Apostle Peter says that everything that we need to live a life of godliness has been provided for us by God. And the purpose of that, Peter says, is that, uh, that he has called us to his own glory and excellence. And so as we study the Solomon's Temple, we learn about God's purpose for us. His purpose is that we would share in his glory, the glory that was manifest in the holy place and the most holy place. That those who belong to him, those who are elect before the foundation of the world, would be so united to Christ that they would share in the glory and the excellence of God. And as we study the furnishings of Solomon's temple, I hope that we will learn about God's purpose for us and his aim to provide uh, for himself that bride which is prepared for Christ and complete in fellowship, completed in, uh, for fellowship and communion with him for all eternity. So I want to look at it under three headings. And the first is, I want us to see that the, the, the people of God are prepared for communion with God in glory, first of all, by God's word of promise and the promise of his own power. Second, I'd like for us to see that the people of God are prepared for communion with God in glory by the provision that he has made for our cleansing for sin. And then thirdly, I'd like for us to note more briefly the way in which the saints in this life experience a foretaste of the glory of God. So first of all, we want to look at the bronze pillars that are mentioned at, that uh, Hiram has made of, that he has made. And uh, as we look at the description that is given at the, of these bronze pillars, we know that uh, converting uh, cubits to feet, they are the pillars themselves, 
without the capitals, are 27 feet high. And they're 18 feet in circumference and 3 inches thick of bronze. And they're hollow. When you add the capitals, now what is a capital? When I first read that, I, uh, what, what is that? Well, a capital would be sort of the crown on the pillar. And so it was a separate piece that was placed on top of the pillar, and it was more intricate and more ornate. And so the capital was to be of lily work. And notice the description of 200 pomegranates in two rows all around, verse 20. And the capitals themselves were seven feet in height, verse 16. And so you, when you add the capitals to the pillar, the total is 34 feet, 34 and a half feet high. And these pillars that were placed just outside uh, in the vestibule, just outside the entrance to the holy place, um, these pillars were freestanding. It's, it's thought by most that they were freestanding and that they uh, towered high and that they were emblems of, uh, in, in some senses, pillars are emblems of, of a tree. Uh, and, and a tree bearing fruit, which would be evidenced in the carvings on the capital. And that's another uh, piece of uh, the way in which the tabernacle was built. It was built in many ways to remind the Israelites of Eden. And the fruitfulness, the trees, and the fruitfulness of the trees of Eden And the fact that when God dwells in the midst of his people, he makes them fruitful. And so the capital and the pillars together, put together, are towering 34 and a half feet. And they reminded the Israelites of the Garden of Eden. But they are given names. And the first one is named Jachin. And the word Jachin means he will establish And this word, establish, uh, is used frequently in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so I invite you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. And I want us to see that this uh, pillar named Jachin is meant to remind us of God's promise that he will establish the covenant. And if we look at verse 12, 12 and 13 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then if we look at verse 16, we read, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. What's the message that comes through? That the kingdom of the Messiah, the kingdom of the one who will come from David's Uh, uh, loins, 
that this kingdom will be established and made firm and strong and that it cannot uh, be uh, withstood. It is established by God. And so that's the first thing, uh, the first pillar. The second pillar, the name of the second pillar is Boaz. And the meaning of the word Boaz is this, in him is strength. In him is strength. And what is meant to be conveyed by that name is that not only is the kingdom of, of, of Solomon and, and, and the kingdom of Christ, not only is it a kingdom that is established and certain by the Lord, it is done in the power of God. That it is God's power that accomplishes the redemption and the salvation of his people. And he does it through the one who is the king, who is to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these names point us to that sure and certain covenant that God has made with David, that God will establish and he will accomplish by his power that salvation that he intends to bring. It is that word of promise that is meant to give the people the assurance and the, of the power and the word of God. The uh, bulwark of, uh, and the pillar of truth, uh, Paul writes to Timothy, uh, the word of God is the, is the pillar of truth. And through that word, God's covenant with David is revealed as that which God will establish in his power. It is certain. It is decreed. The covenant is firm. It is fixed in the divine uh, word, in the divine decree. So the word of God is revealed uh, to uh, David and to all of God's people as uh, the covenant of redemption, the covenant that God had made before the foundation of the world, it tells us that God himself is the one who will accomplish your redemption and mine. And our task is to receive the word of God and to believe what God has promised. And to know that the world hates uh, the word of God and seeks to destroy it. But it is, uh, cannot be overthrown uh, the word and the power of the word is celebrated in Martin Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. Jesus said to Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The world sets itself against the Lord and its anointed. But God here by these pillars announces to the people of Israel that his word is steadfast and sure. God had spoken to David, and uh, these words are beautiful. Uh, David, in his last words, says that God has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered and in all, ordered in all things and secure. Ordered and in all things and secure. So the saints then are prepared 
by God by giving each one a firm covenant, a firm promise that God's word uh, will accomplish that which he has promised by his power. The second thing that I'd like for us to notice that God does to prepare his people for communion with him in glory is that he gives them uh, he gives them the means of cleansing. He gives them the means of cleansing. Now you'll notice that uh, the description of the great sea is found in verses 23 and following. And he made the great sea of cast metal. And it is round, and it is measured 15 feet in diameter. Think how huge that was. And it was made of bronze, and it was seven and a half feet in depth, and it is thought to have been able to hold 11,000 gallons of water. Under its rim were gourds in two rows, compassing the sea all around verse 24. And on uh, this great sea of water rested on 12 oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. And this great bronze sea, full of water, was an emblem to the people of God of the work of God in over, it, 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 could, it could have been that it reminded the people of God of, of, of the power of God over water, as a water being symbolic of chaos and death, and how God uh, brought them through the Red Sea by his power. And thus it may have been a symbol of the victory of God over the forces of death. And of course, uh, uh, that is ultimately fulfilled for us in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ who uh, passed through the sea of death uh, to life at the Father's right hand. But primarily, I think, that the waters held in this great bronze sea uh, point us to uh, the fact that this water was used by the priests for washings and purification. And they point us to our need for purification and for cleansing. As you read the prophets of the Old Testament, the one message that comes through again and again is that the sin of the people of Israel has defiled them. They are in need of cleansing. And it's not only true for the people of Israel, but it is true of you and me. Each and every one of us is conscious of the fact that before a holy God, we are defiled by our sin. And so the prophets speak about the need of cleansing and the time that God would provide a way for that. But the need of cleansing is beautifully stated by Isaiah when he says, wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, 
they shall become like wool. And you can't help but remember the beautiful promise that Ezekiel gives in chapter 36, where he, the Lord says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. You definitely get the message that uh, the great need of a sinful people, of a guilty people, of a defiled people, and of you and me this evening is that we be washed, that we be made clean. And uh, Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, promises that there will be a day, that there will be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanness. There is a fountain, we sing. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilt and stains. And so uh, Peter, uh, describing uh, what happens in the redemption brought by God, says, Uh, You were ransomed from your futile ways with the precious blood of Christ. And then he goes on to say to, uh, to those who he was writing to, you have purified your souls by obedience to the truth. You have purified your souls by obedience to the truth. Obedience to the gospel, obedience to the summons to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. A closing with Christ. Confessing one's sin. And coming to Christ. Believing that Christ's blood shed on the cross, shed for my purification, cleanses us, purifies us passage that was referred to this morning after describing all the multiform ways in which sin defiles Paul says such were some of you but you were washed you were sanctified you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the spirit of our God and then uh, Titus chapter 3 verses 4 and 5 When the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. What he's saying is that when we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we are washed And we are renewed. We are made new. I believe that the waters of the great sea and also of the ten basins are meant to symbolize Israel's great need of the cleansing from sin. And this is our great need. Not only are we washed when we believe in Christ, but we are washed day by day as we come to Christ in faith and we pray, Lord, uh, forgive my sins. Lord, 
Wash me and make me clean. Help me, O Lord, to live for you with a clean conscience washed by your spirit. So the Lord works this in the hearts of his people. And now briefly, not only does God provide everything in, uh, by, in, the, in, the, in the items of the, uh, of the, uh, uh, the furnishings of the temple, I do want to just say, I know I'm clean out of time, but I do want to say that, that this section on the, um, uh, that the description of the stands for the ten basins um, it seems to me that there's a great deal of descriptive detail from verses 27 through 37 of these stands. But you notice that right in the midst of that, there is a reference to that, the, that these stands are made like a chariot wheel, verse 33. I can't help but think they're made mobile. They're made like a chariot wheel. Not that they would be moved very much because they would be too heavy for that, but the symbolism of, of the movability of this water and also with the great sea having the, the oxen facing the four directions. I can't help but think that here we see that this is a cleansing not only for Israel but for all the nations. That this is the Lord's, that it is the Lord's purpose that the gospel go out and that men and women from all nations um, uh, that the Lord will bring this water as it were to uh, the nations for their cleansing I, I, I don't know if that's uh, speculative but um, I can't but notice the, the reference to chariot wheels in, in, in relation to the stands that carry the water in the ten basins now, just briefly, in the second part, in verses 48 through 50, we find the description of the vessels um, in the Lord's house. Um, in verses 48 and 50, the, um, Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of the Lord, the golden altar, the golden table, and the bread of the presence. I'm not going to spend much time on this, here, I would think, if we can think of these items of furniture that we've just described as being in the, uh, uh, the inner courtyard. Now, notice that the one item that isn't mentioned is the altar. And the altar is not mentioned, and it is thought that it wasn't mentioned because of the fact that the altar, you remember, for the tabernacle was to be made of earth and stone. And it was a one piece that was not to have man's uh, uh, chiseling and, and man's work making it. It was to be, as it were, uh, primitive and, 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 and kept apart from any of man's uh, shaping or forming. I can't help but think that points us again to the fact that on the altar, the animals were slain for sacrifice. And the altar points ahead to the cross, which is the instrument in God's wisdom uh, for the death of the spotless Lamb of God. Uh, but all these other items of furniture are mentioned. So then, in the outer court, preparing us 
for communion with God, cleansing. The word, the sure promise of God, um, and the altar, and the sacrifice that is offered on the altar, in, in, that, uh, in the court. But as you move into the holy place, the vessels are made of gold. And so you see here those things that mark one who has been brought into communion and fellowship with God. The marks of one who has been brought into communion with God. And we see first the golden altar of incense. When the priest burned incense in the golden altar, he stood in front of the Ark of the Covenant and he approached the mercy seat. And as he prayed, his prayers rose as the incense rose to the presence of the Lord. Incense is the great symbol in scripture of prayer. And prayer is that which marks the one who is in fellowship and communion with God. Where David describes his own prayers, let my prayer be counted as incense before you. It is a symbol then of the of the prayers of God's people that are pleasing to God to hear. And we ought to be continually offering to God the desires of our hearts and prayers and petitions and prayers of thanksgiving, sacrifices of praise to God. Secondly, we see the golden table for the bread of the presence. Every week the priests would place 12 loaves of bread on this golden table. And it was a reminder of the Lord's provision of manna in the wilderness. And each week the priests would eat this bread in the presence of the Lord. And uh, the bread uh, we know from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the very bread that God gives. And so to me this is emblematic of the life, not only of prayer, but of feeding, <coughs> feeding upon uh, Christ, feeding upon Christ, who is the bread whom the Father gives, the true bread from heaven, the bread of God, who comes down from heaven and gives his life for the world. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on that last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. It is that mark of fellowship that the believer has with God that through the word of God and through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and baptism, we feed upon the bread that God has provided for our souls, and he enables us to uh, be uh, filled, filled with his grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. How we need to abide in him through word and sacraments, the grace of God, and the life of fellowship of Mar- uh, with God is marked by this faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Thirdly, we see the lamps stands of pure gold, uh, five on the south and five on the north. And the tabernacle 
In the, uh, in the tab- previous tabernacle, there was only one lamp, but in the temple, there, there are now ten. And uh, the lamps would illumine the cherubim, the palm trees, and the open flowers that were carved on the walls that were overlaid with gold. Can you imagine what it must have been like? Uh, I was driving home from New Hampshire uh, this week, and I was thinking about the ser- this sermon. I was thinking about the glory of, of, of God in the holy place. Um, and these walls, all covered with gold, in, with, with, with the images of cherubim in them, and, and uh, how when the lamps were lit, how that light must have just reflected. I was driving home from New Hampshire, and I was uh, looking at certain stretches of the road where, where the, the trees were just golden yellow, and the sun was hitting those trees at exactly the, the spot, and it was as though they were on fire. And uh, I was struck by the beauty of that. And uh, the, the holy place is a lit with the glory of God. That's the, that's the idea, that, that these lamps would, would, as it were, reveal the glory of God. And how does he do that? He does that through uh, knowledge, the gift of the knowledge of Christ. The lamps would, uh, are those that uh, give light. And the Lord is the one who is the giver of light. Jesus said, whoever follows me, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light of Christ works in us in two ways. He illuminates the darkness of sin. The first thing that God the Holy Spirit does in anyone who he brings to himself, he illuminates the darkness of our sin. We not only grudgingly confess it, but we see it as a horror we see it like we've never seen it before, and we grieve over it, and that is what the light does. But more importantly, even than that, the light is so shining on the Lord Jesus Christ that the one whom God calls to himself, he gives us the knowledge of Jesus Christ in his life, his words, his deeds, his death, his resurrection, on the behalf of, of sinners, his death for sinners and his resurrection and the gift of life that he gives. It is the knowledge of Christ that enlightens our minds and leads us to the very glory of God. And so the temple is in a wonderful way, not only in the way it was constructed by uh, from, uh, various metals leading to uh, the, the, the gold that marked the, the inner sanctuary. But uh, it was, in a sense, a climbing of a mountain because each level of the uh, temple was higher than the one uh, uh, below it. And so as the Israelites approached the temple, it would be as though they were climbing to the glory of God. And isn't it true that what, what God's intent is that he would bring us into fellowship and communion with him that we might share in the glory of God. I love the way that the larger catechism describes that, uh, the, the fact that union with Christ is a union that we have both in grace and in glory. And it divides that in that way. 
and the experience of the glory of God is then divided in those things that the Christian experiences in this life and then the life after death. And so God's purpose for us is that we would know him in his glorious presence, that we would be in his glorious presence forever and ever. And the whole of the temple was symbolic of his presence with his people. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And fruitfulness and light and joy will abound. God is in the process of doing that in your life and in mine, in our sanctification, in our growth. Paul describes that as an ever-increasing glory. We come then, finally, on the great day of Christ's return to the union of heaven and earth when we in resurrected bodies will share in the glory of God forever and ever. What a wonderful thing the temple is in terms... There's a, there's a, there's a, a revelation of the glory of God and his grace and his mercy to sinners in the temple and in all of the various furnishings of the temple and the gifts that he gives us. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we do thank you for this passage, uh, difficult in many ways, and yet, Lord, reveal that which you do for your people by your grace. May we apply it, each in our own personal circumstances. May we repent of our sins and come to Christ. May we trust in that sure and certain promise. May we build our lives upon your word. And may it be, O Lord, that you would cleanse us and wash us and prepare us for fellowship and communion with you forever and ever. And we ask this in Jesus' name.